What expectations do you have for your leaders? I remember receiving uh, a questionnaire at a church that I was a member of. We were waiting on our next pastor. So the leaders put together a questionnaire asking everyone in the church, what are you looking for in a pastor? And then they had numbers underneath each question. Which of these things is most important to you? I wonder if you had to fill out such a questionnaire. What would you say is the most important thing in your pastor or the next pastor that, that you would embrace as your own leader? My wife remembers sitting in a meetings, a search committee meeting, and hearing different members of the church evaluating someone who had just come to preach and criticizing all these little things in the sermon. I wonder what you would look for if you were waiting on a new pastor. I wonder what you would look for in a political leader. I'm sure you ask yourself this question at least every four years. As you go to the polls, as you cast your vote as an American, what are you looking for in your next president? What are the issues that are most important to you? What are the things that are going to get you out of your house to go and to vote, exercise your rights as a citizen of this country? In our passage this morning, the nation Israel has been awaiting their leader, their Messiah. And they have expectations for this leader. They know exactly what it is that they want him to be and what they want him to do. But when their promised Messiah shows up, he doesn't fit into their box. He doesn't meet their expectations. He's not the Messiah that they hoped he would be. And when he didn't meet their expectations, they grew angry, even violent. In fact, they were ready to kill him because he didn't meet their expectations. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 4. Verses 14 to 44. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. We've returned again to the book of Luke and a series that we've been going through piecemeal through the, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament. It is one of the four Gospels, which are four accounts of the life of Christ. This one written by the physician Luke, who was a close associate of Paul's, who put together this narrative of Jesus life and ministry, his death and resurrection, and presents for us the gospel in the life of Jesus Christ. Luke actually spends the most amount of time of all the gospel writers on Jesus' early life. In fact, it isn't until here in Luke chapter 4 that we actually get to Jesus' ministry. Luke is spending a lot of time establishing who Jesus is, how he fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament, how his miraculous birth to a virgin proves that he is both God and man, and also demonstrating that he was truly a man, and as a man is able to represent all of humanity and offer salvation, not just for Jews, but for anyone who would realize their need of a Savior, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ. Our passage comes at the tail end of Jesus' temptation, which we saw the last time we were in Luke, as Jesus demonstrates that he is the new Adam. Not one who would fail like the first Adam and give in to temptation and turn everything wrong in this world, but the new Adam who would be everything that that first Adam was not. The new Adam, the true Adam, who would actually be able to conquer Satan and sin and offer for us salvation forever with God. 
Our passage begins in verse 14. If you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Our main point is this. The king has come to rescue the needy. The king has come to rescue the needy. And if you're taking notes, four points this morning. The king's identity, the king's rejection, the king's authority, and the king's purpose. The king's rejection, his authority, uh, his, sorry, his identity, his rejection, his authority, and his purpose. I pray that this morning we would have eyes to see Jesus as the true king and embrace him as the only one who is able to meet our greatest need. Let's begin by reading the first part of our passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke, 14, uh, Luke 4, verses 14 to 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's word. Luke begins this section, this section where Jesus begins his ministry in verses 14 and 15 with a summary statement of what Jesus' ministry was like. Verses 14 and 15 is a summary at the beginning here. See what he emphasizes in verses 14 and 15. That Jesus is not working on his own, but in the power of the Spirit. The Trinity is at work in Jesus' ministry. The Father has sent his Son. The Spirit has empowered Jesus the Messiah to do great things. And now as he begins his ministry of teaching in their synagogues and doing miracles, reports are going out and spreading throughout all of the area. Now what's interesting, what Paul, I'm sorry, what Luke highlights in verse 15 at the end there is that in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he was glorified by all. That is, all that heard his teaching with authority and saw his miracles, which were amazing, that early on, he was glorified by all. He was received by all. They were excited to see this Messiah as he came. However, not everyone was willing to accept this Messiah. And what Luke highlights is that while he was glorified by all, when he came to Nazareth, he got a different response. Look at what happens in Nazareth, and starting in verse 16. He comes back home. Now, I think all of us could imagine this scene. Imagine showing up at, in your hometown surrounded by the people that know you, having now been revealed as the one who is the Messiah. I wonder how you think you might be received if you were Jesus. I think for all of us who have grown up 
in communities. We've known at least someone who does something great or receives notoriety for something. How is it that we respond when someone receives notoriety or becomes famous when we knew them when they were younger? We'll get to that shortly. But you can imagine what the the scene is like, the tension that might be there, how different people might respond to him, either positively or negatively. Jesus comes to the synagogue and he does a surprising thing. He does something that had never been done in the synagogue before. He read scripture and then he declared, this scripture is about me. In fact, not only that, but I am fulfilling the scripture. Now he quotes Isaiah. He finds in the scroll of Isaiah, which was handed to him, the place that we read this morning, Isaiah 61, where this particular prophecy was made. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Let's read it again there in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And notice something very fascinating. Notice that Jesus stops mid-sentence, closes the scroll, and sits down. I think this would be a passage that would be well known to these Israelites as they were anticipating this Messiah who would come. They would know those prophecies, and they would know what they said. And there would be particular parts of those prophecies that would stick in their minds as the most important part. Notice where Jesus cuts this off. Isaiah 61 Verses 1 and 2. Do you see it there in verse 2? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and and the day of vengeance of our God. Now what is Jesus doing here? Why does he cut off this prophecy short? Why does he not meet the expectations that these people have for him? The expectations that this Messiah, if he is the Messiah, if he is the true king, if that is his identity, Why doesn't he continue with the rest of the prophecy? Well, it's because Jesus was helping these people to read their Bibles better. He's helping them to understand how these prophecies were to work. As you read your Old Testament and think through how Jesus fulfills it in the New Testament, let me remind you that there are things prophesied about Jesus in the Old Testament that have not yet taken place, but will take place in the future at Christ's second coming. What Jesus was actually doing was saying, yes, I am the king, but there are things that I'm going to do this time when I'm with you that I'm not going to do the next time, and vice versa. I am going to return a second time as an avenger, but this time I am coming to bring good news. I am coming actually to offer myself as a sacrifice for the salvation of any that would believe. Now, Jesus then rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. Everyone's eyes are fixed on him, verse 20. In verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, this is me. And in fact, this is my ministry. This is who I am. I am your Messiah King that you were waiting for. And this prophecy here, I am going to be fulfilling while I'm here on earth among you. This is what I've come to do. Now imagine 
anyone saying that. It's a staggering thing to say. Jesus declaring this is saying that he isn't just a man, that he isn't just a good teacher, that he isn't just a prophet. No, he he can't be any of those things. He's not merely a man or a teacher or a prophet. No, he's so much more. He is God himself in human flesh. He is the God-man, Jesus. He is God incarnate, fully God, fully man in one person who has come to be the promised Messiah. And he has come with authority to do good. Look at the things that he says he has come to do. To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim the gospel, good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. And to free those who are oppressed. Now it's clear that the people were not ready for a a Messiah King like this. Sure, they might like some of these things, but what they wanted more than this was the day of vengeance of our God. This is why they're going to go on to reject him. But look at what Jesus describes his ministry as. You see that he has come for the poor. Many people talk about wanting to imitate Jesus and caring for the poor, and that's good. But it's clear that Jesus has more in mind than simply physically poor. He's going to say, in a couple of chapters, in the Sermon on the Mount, that he has come for the poor in spirit, for those that realize their spiritual poverty. And he has come to meet our greatest poverty, our greatest need, which is that we are spiritually poor. Not only that, he's come to recover, uh, to proclaim liberty to captives. What's interesting about this is a few chapters later, John the Baptist is a little frustrated with Jesus because he's now in prison and he's wondering, are you the guy that We thought you were going to be the one who proclaimed liberty to the captives. And Jesus says, yes, I am that person. But he doesn't free John from prison. In fact, John goes on to be beheaded. But he does free the captives, those that are captive to sin and to Satan. And he would demonstrate this by freeing people from demonic possession. He also is going to recover sight for the blind. And he'll do that with his miracles. But there's a much deeper blindness that all of us have, the blindness of our spiritual blindness, where we do not see what is ultimately true about ourselves and about our sin. And not only that, but to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed, not from political opponents, but oppressed from their sin and demonic oppression. Jesus would do this through his teaching. Through his miracles, he would demonstrate it. But do you see how he was going to do this? By proclaiming, by declaring a message. This is, Jesus is doing here, is the gospel message. This is the good news. The good news that he preaches is the same good news that we preach. He preached it a little different because he said, I'm the good news. And I'm the one through whom this good news comes. I am the one who is going to free those that are captive to give sight to the blind, to give liberty to the oppressed. We preach the same gospel message from this pulpit that Jesus preached then, only we point to him, and we say your salvation, brothers, sisters, friends, can only come through the the one, the King, Jesus. See, the gospel message is about bad news, that all of us are sinners, that all of us have rebelled against our good and loving and holy God, that all of us deserve punishment, that we deserve to be captive, to be oppressed. 
because we've all sinned greatly against a holy God. But yet this good news declares that though we deserve for Christ to come and to avenge us as his enemy, that he actually came for another purpose. That he didn't come to avenge us, to destroy us, but to offer to any that would receive it new life, salvation, eternal life, both now and forever with our Creator God, in which we enjoy a perfect relationship, delighting in Him, enjoying Him forever. This is the King. This is His identity. And this is what He has come to do to bring good news to those that are needy and realize it. That's point number one, the King's identity. Point number two, the King's rejection. We'll pick up in verse 22. I'll be reading verses 22 to 30. Look now at the response of these people to this declaration of Jesus being the king. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is point number two, the king's rejection. You see the response of the people. It looks like the response, at least at first, is mixed. Some are speaking well of him. Look, he speaks with authority. Maybe he could be the Messiah. Yes, yes, he's from our hometown, but... The Messiah has to come from somewhere, right? Maybe this could be him. But others are saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, put yourself in the place of these people. Imagine someone that you grew up with, someone that you knew, maybe a a kid that you went to school with, now all of a sudden declaring himself to be the Messiah. Imagine being an older person in the town and this young whippersnapper declares himself to be a king, uh, to be the Messiah. How would you respond? Isn't that Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? As older men would say to young men, as I was growing up in Pennsylvania, I think he's getting a little too big for his britches. He's taking upon himself far too much. Who does he think he is? We, We knew him. We knew him growing up. We knew him when he was little. That runny nose, snotty nosed kid. Who does he think he is? Some seem positive, some seem negative and critical. I wonder how you would respond. I remember uh, finding out that a kid that I'd gone to school with became a jockey and won the, the Preakness, and then won the Kentucky Derby as a jockey. He was that kid in my homeroom, that, that really short one. But now all of a sudden, he's, he's on everyone's television, and everyone is talking about This horse and this jockey and this amazing thing, they're going to win all three. 
And what's your first response when you hear about someone that you knew becoming famous? Well, one is, he's not that big. I, I knew him when he was just that kid. And the second thought is, I wonder how much money he made. I wonder if he could funnel some of that to me. I wonder if I could get some advantage out of this, because I, I knew him. I, I know him. And it looks like that's what's happening here. At first, some were critical. Others seem maybe positive. Maybe this could be good for us. The Messiah comes from our hometown. Couldn't we benefit from this in some way? And how does Jesus respond? He tells them that he hasn't come for them. Imagine that. Imagine being in the hometown of the Messiah. And the Messiah saying, I haven't come for you. And the reason is, because you aren't willing to accept me. And look at what he says. Verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself. Now what Jesus is saying here is there was this proverb. A proverb of if a physician is sick, look at the irony of this. Well, if you're such a good physician or doctor, heal yourself. But what Jesus means by it here is, hey, if you're a physician, you need to heal yourself, your own, your, your own people. If you are the Messiah, help your own people. And then he says, you're going to say to me, verse 23, the things that you did over in Capernaum, do them here too. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus is going to be treated as the other prophets were, rejected by many. And then he says something even more offensive in verses 25 to 27, that he's actually come to be a Messiah for outsiders. That he's actually come to be a Messiah for Gentiles. He's actually come to save not just Jews and not just people from Nazareth. In fact, he's come to save people from all over the world, just like Elisha and Elijah helped and healed Gentiles. He says, I'm going to do the same. This gets them so angry that they are ready to kill him for blasphemy. That they are ready to take him to the top of the cliff and throw him off for declaring himself to be the Messiah when he doesn't meet their expectations. I wonder how you read the story. I wonder if you put yourself in the shoes of these people if you think that you would respond better than they did. That you, surely you, if you were there, would have accepted him as your Messiah, would have embraced him as the true promised one. I wonder if you believe that you would have responded better than they did. You know, all of us can deal with anger and frustration, even with God, when we don't get what we expect from him, when he doesn't meet our expectations. I wonder, brothers, sisters, how you are doing this morning with your relationship with God. I wonder how you handle it when God doesn't meet your expectations when God doesn't give you the things that you're asking for, or when the salvation that he promised you and gave to you in Christ doesn't also give you the other things in this life that you have been longing for or hoping for. Do you know that our hearts are often not that different from the people here, getting frustrated, even angry with our God when he doesn't meet our expectations? I wonder as well how many of you, even this morning, may be feeling rejected. I wonder if you have struggled even this week with feelings of rejection in some way. Perhaps you are dealing with text messages that have gone unanswered, social media posts that have gone unliked, have looked at situations where other people are 
spending time together and somehow they didn't invite you or your invitation got lost in the mail. I wonder if you feel rejected in a more forceful way. Perhaps friends that you've known and loved now that you're a Christian no longer want to spend time with you or, or hang out with you. I wonder if you're feeling feelings of rejection. Did you know in that God has a plan? And did you know even in that, in those feelings of rejection, that you can experience something of what Christ is going through here? You know, Christ was rejected. That Christ was dismissed. That Christ was treated violently. And do you know why he was rejected? He was rejected for you and for me. He was rejected by men. Rejected by those that he came to save. So that you and I wouldn't have to be ultimately rejected. Yes, we may be rejected in this life. And in following Jesus, taking up our cross and following him, we may face incredible rejection in this life. But even as we follow Christ, our hope is ultimate that we will never be rejected by God if we have put our faith in Christ. That's point number two, the king's rejection. Point number three, the king's authority. Point number three, the king's authority, verses 31 to 41. Jesus now moves to Capernaum, another city in Galilee. Look at verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 38, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was. Now in Capernaum, Jesus' authority is demonstrated in a much clearer way. He is able to do surprising things. He teaches with authority to the point that people marvel and are amazed by it. And not only that, he demonstrates his authority not only with his word in terms of teaching, but also with his word in terms of casting out demons, healing the sick. Look at Jesus' authority on display here. Look at how he demonstrates it. He begins by demonstrating it with his teaching. And he's teaching in a way that no other man has or will ever teach. Because when he taught, it was the very words of God that were being spoken. This is God himself teaching other men and women because he is God become man. And they're astonished by his teaching. It looks like the teaching of that day would involve 
people in the synagogue standing up and reading scripture and spending a lot of time quoting different commentators about what this person thought it meant and what that person thought it meant. And then Jesus shows up and he doesn't talk about what different people think something means. No, he reads God's word and then teaches with authority because he is God's word, the word made flesh. He also demonstrates his authority not only with his teaching, but also with his deeds. He begins there by casting out a demon that is in a man. Demons here are angels. They're fallen angels. They are angels, spiritual beings created by God, who then fell. Those that rejected God with Satan and fell and are now at work in our world and have been at work in our world, doing the same work that Satan has been doing. They are his minions. He is the one in authority over these spiritual authorities that are evil. And here they are possessing people. Jesus is demonstrating his authority by casting out these angels, these fallen angels that are possessing these people. Now it's interesting how he responds to these demons as he demonstrates his authority. What's amazing is that they're recognizing him. In fact, they're actually giving him some good press. They're declaring themselves who this person is. You, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You are the King and the Messiah. I wonder how, how you would think of this if you were Jesus or one of his disciples. That's kind of like free marketing, isn't it? Here's, here's demons declaring who Jesus is. Isn't that, isn't that good for our campaign? Isn't that good for our political party? How does Jesus respond when demons are declaring who he is? He silences them. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think for at least two reasons. First reason is he doesn't want demons in charge of his Twitter account. He doesn't want demons being the one to represent him or to be his media person. No, he doesn't want demons being the ones telling people who he is. Demons are not trustworthy. Yes, they know who he is, and they're afraid of him. And they say some true things. But demons cannot be trusted to always speak the truth. He doesn't want demons being the ones to represent him. I think the second reason he silences them is Jesus is also concerned with his ministry following the Spirit's leading and the Father's plan. And that means, at times, slowing down the progress of reports and not bringing everything to a head too quickly. So there are times when Jesus tells people, go and tell your friends and family about what the Lord has done for you. And there are other times where he says, please don't, don't say anything about this, because he's wanting to make sure that these things happen according to God's plan and that things are not sped up too quickly to him being crucified before his time. Well, he does deliver these people from demons. He is in this way beginning to fulfill the prophecy that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden, that there would be one who would come, the seed of the woman, who would trample the head of the serpent. Jesus is, by casting out demons, displaying that he is the one who has authority over demons and over Satan himself, and that he is the one who will one day crush Satan and deliver his people from sin and from Satan. You know, that's who this king is. He is the one who will deliver us ultimately from sin and the power of Satan. He's also the one who would deliver, who will deliver all of us one day 
from all sickness. He is the healer. And that's what he does in verses 38 and 39. Simon, it looks like Simon Peter's mother-in-law, his wife's mother, was very sick with a high fever. In that day and age, that would have been a danger to her very life. There were no Tylenols or antibiotics. And what happened? He went over and he rebuked the fever. You know, what Jesus is doing by these actions is demonstrating who he is and the authority that he has. And while it isn't time for him to make everything right, to heal everyone of all sickness, there will be a day in which he will do that, when he will wipe away every tear, when there will no longer be pain or hurt. Take heart, brothers and sisters, the, the one who will one day expel all sickness is Jesus, and he has that authority, and one day he will exercise it so that everything will be made right for his people. You see that he does this then in verses 40 and 41. To everyone in the town that comes to him in faith, trusts in him, he heals them. He casts out demons. He is the king. He has authority. He's the one that God has sent to be the ruler and the leader that all of us need. We need to have Humility to receive him. It's point number three, the king's authority. Point number four, the king's purpose. Point number four, the king's purpose. I'm sure we can imagine if we had been in Capernaum during this time, how exciting it would be to have someone like Jesus in our midst. Imagine having someone who could heal all sickness, who could heal diseases could cast out demons. I think I would get excited that some utopia could finally be found here on earth. Some idyllic state. How do the people respond? Verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Just as the people in Nazareth had expectations for Jesus, the people in Capernaum did too. And just as he disappointed the people in Nazareth, he disappointed the people in Capernaum too. You see, they were not able to put Jesus in a box. They were not able to control him. They were not able to domesticate him or to make him the leader that they wanted him to be. No, Jesus had come with a purpose. And that purpose at times fit in with the purpose that people had for him. Very often it diverged. Jesus came with a purpose, and his purpose was greater than simply meeting physical needs, healing people of diseases and casting out demons. No, he came for a much greater purpose. What did he come for? Well, he says it in verse 43. What is the purpose the Messiah came? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Many people have read the Gospels and have thought of Jesus and have debated, why is it that Jesus came? Even many Christians have talked about the different things that Jesus did and have tried to say, well, no, this was the most important thing that Jesus did. No, this was the most important thing that Jesus did. And we should imitate him by doing these things. There have been many people that have turned churches into social gatherings. The greatest need is for people to have 
uh, relationships. And so let's turn the church into a social club. Others have said, no, we need to turn the church into like a hospital. We need to meet physical needs. There's too many physical needs out there on earth. Let's stop talking about doctrine and things that are high in the sky, and let's be practical and help people actual, people's actual needs like Jesus did. Now, it is true that God's people must be loving and kind. We must treat people as Jesus did with tenderness. We must use the authority that he's given us and the resources that he's given us to respond to others like Jesus did with tenderness and sympathy. Do you see that Jesus came with a greater purpose than simply meeting physical needs? That he came because he had a message, a message of unbelievable importance. That he had a good news to preach. And it wasn't just for one town, but it was for all of the towns. It was for all of the peoples in all of the world. A message of the kingdom of God, that the king had come. That the king was here. And that he had come to save a people for himself. And that's why he came. What this means for us as Christians is that we need to follow Jesus' example in making the church a place in which God's word is central and the preaching of God's word is central. We need to model our ministries after Jesus' ministry. What we need to make the church about is God's word being preached. Martin Luther, the reformer, helped to reestablish preaching in the pulpits of his day in Germany in the 1500s. And he said, using a funny German word, that the church needs to be a mouth house that the church needs to be a mouth house. And he says, there's a quote from Luther, since Christ has come with the gospel, so has now come preaching. And it is the manner of the New Testament and of the gospel that it must be preached and performed by word of mouth and a living voice. You see, the church is to be a mouth house, a place where Christ and the message of the gospel is preached boldly, loudly, and declared because This is the purpose of the church. And this is the purpose that Christ came for. To preach a message, a message of eternal salvation, not simply temporary healing of physical needs, but meeting our much greater spiritual needs. We as a church, you as members of this church, need to prioritize God's word and preaching like Jesus did. Because what people need is to hear of their sin to hear of the ultimate remedy, remedy that only comes through Christ, through his death to place the sinner. We also need to be prioritizing the word in our missions endeavors. That's why I love that in this missions trip that we've just sent out, that these people are going in order to minister the word. They're going to free up local church pastors and wives to hear the word taught and preached, to hear theology taught and doctrine impressed so that they can be refreshed and encouraged to go back home and do the same thing in their churches to preach the gospel. Not only that, these people have gone also to preach the gospel to the children of these ministers and families. That's why we as a church prioritize the word and the the missions that we send out. So encouraged by these people, pray for them this week, that God would use them, would use them in a profound way, both in the lives of these families, but in the churches that are represented there. That those churches would also be such mouth houses where the gospel is preached and truth is declared. People are saved and people are growing in their faith. 
That's also why we emphasize in our missions in terms of who we partner with. Pastors and church plants. People that will preach the gospel. Because it is through the gospel and the good news and preaching that the kind of change that Jesus came for will ultimately be accomplished in a temporary way, leading to that final time when we will be with Christ forever and everything will be made new. I wonder how you are doing in your relationship with Christ today. I wonder if He is meeting your expectations for the kind of leader that you want, the kind of Savior that you wish for. I was reminded this week of one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. I've loved reading that to my children, seeing them get excited about this beautiful story of these children being whisked away into another fantastical world, a world that is ruled by another leader, a leader that images Christ, Aslan. These little children are hearing about this lion that they're about to meet, and they're afraid, as all of us would be. And I love this quote. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, Christ isn't safe. He isn't the kind of person that we can domesticate or control. And he isn't the kind of person who's going to meet all of our expectations that we have for him. No, he isn't safe in that way, but he's good and we can trust him. And he has come not just to give us everything that we think we want or meet all of our felt needs. No, he has come with a purpose to meet our deepest need. And he's come for those who recognize that need and will embrace him for who he is. And he will give us joy in this life and forevermore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that Christ has come. We thank you that he came and was misunderstood, that he came and was abused and rejected, that he came and was mistreated. He did that for sinners like us so that we wouldn't have to be, so that we could be in being united with him, your children forever. We pray that you would help us to follow in Jesus' footsteps to be those that prioritize your word in our lives, in our lives in the church and in the world, that we would be those that preach good news to the poor. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.